The last three episodes were brought to you by Simple Texting, and now I'm going to try it out for myself. I want to know what guest you are most interested in being interviewed on the show. So get out your phones right now and text Code Story Vote, all one word, all caps, to 555 888 to have your say in who I interview on Code Story. Again, text Code Story Vote, all one word, all caps, to 555 888. I look forward to hearing from you. I didn't know there was a true crime meets cybercrime category. There isn't a true crime meets cybercrime category, right? So that podcast category is something I invented in my own head. And then I was determined to be the best in that category, even though nobody else even knew that category existed, right? That was unique and the best. So to be the first in that space and the best in that space was that combo, I think is really important. If you can accomplish that, that's great. But at the same time, I'm making t-shirts and that is not something unique and special at all. My name is Jack Recider, and I am the creator of the podcast Darknet Diaries. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labpart, and today how Jack Recider scratched his entrepreneurial itch by building the world's most popular InfoSec podcast. All this and more on Code Story. Today's guest is going to be a little different than our normal tech founder, but by no means any less accomplished. Jack Recider is a veteran of the security world. He likes to explore whether it be through street cycling, looking through abandoned buildings, alleyways, or just plain getting outdoors. He grew up with conspiracy theories, but found himself drawn more to the truthful scandal over the former. Having watched some of the biggest events in our history come and go, such as the dot-com bubble, Bitcoin boom, etc., he felt the increasing presence of an entrepreneurial itch. In the early days, he built some blogs and websites using some well-known web technology, and he cultivated a love of podcasting and great storytelling. Not able to find a great storytelling podcast in the InfoSec arena, he decided to give it a shot on his own. Fast forward to today, his podcast, Darknet Diaries, is one of the most well-known podcasts available, topping the charts with its weekly release of Hacking True Stories. I mean, it's very much inspired by This American Life. So that's rich in sound design and interviews and narration and writing. And then the, the story is always about hacking or cybercrime. The tagline is true stories from the dark side of the internet, right? So all the stuff that's like going on secretly on the internet is in my lens of possibility here. It's true crime meets cybercrime. And it's all very uh, heavily researched. I mean, I've really tried to find the human element in it as well. A lot of times we hear, okay, well, hackers broke into this bank and stole like a million dollars. Okay, well, there was the human element here. Who got hurt? Who pulled the trigger? Like all these things that we totally skip over. And so it's also kind of a slow news kind of podcast, right? Like if there's something that happened 10 years ago, but we didn't know who did it, 
until like two years later. And then they couldn't catch them until five years later. And then they didn't get sentenced until seven years later, right? Like so all these things. And then the fallout is 10 years later. Okay, well now 10 years later, I have a great story on my hands that I can go back and do from the beginning all the way to the end. And I really love that. And that, that kind of thing, I think was the thing I was wanting the most is give me a full update on this hacking story. Don't give me the latest news and then pepper it like every day for the next three months with little updates. I want the full story from the beginning to the end all laid out for me in one big long chunk. Yeah, that just wasn't happening in the podcast world. So that's why I made Darknet Diaries is to to have those kind of stories that I could listen to. (laughs) This is going to be interesting to ask you this question because normally... You know, I interview CTOs and product builders, which you have built a product, but tell me about the MVP. Tell me about how long it took you to build. Let's dive into the that first episode and maybe even the first four episodes. What sort of tools did you use to build it, whether that be digital tools or knowledge-based tools? And how did you go about that process? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was really into podcasts. I had been listening to podcasts probably like two hours a day for like, a year or two or three years before that. So I really understood podcasts. Like that was my space. I understood how they sounded. Like, is there an intro? Is there music, you know, is intro music? Is it, what's the outro sound like? Where are the ads at? What's the cold open like? So I I was really familiar with like all the different elements of it. And, and, and what I was trying to do is take all of my favorite podcasts and pretty, I'm going to say it, I copy the exact things that I loved out of them. So if somebody had like a really cool I don't know, accent, I would try that accent because <laughs> I, I, and if they had like a, a timbre or, or a cadence, I would try that. So I was, I was doing all these like experiments and the kind of the thing I landed on was this kind of a insomniac voice, which is kind of like Rami Malek in, uh, in Mr. Robot or, or the narrator in, in Fight Club, where he's just really like, hasn't had sleep for like five days and he just sounds totally like giving up on everything (laughs) i really wanted that voice so i practiced it by like staying up late at night like four or five o'clock in the morning and then recording some stuff (laughs) but that was really that didn't work out the way i wanted so so not quite sustainable (laughs) yeah so i really really tried to copy it like exactly but it never was exactly ever which made it my own kind of flavor of you know i mean if i'm grabbing inspiration and copying inspiration from 50 different different places and then putting it all in a pot and having my own version of it that's really in my opinion more inspirational than it is copying i I, i'm just picking up flavors and cues and hints and colors from all these places but then my way of doing it is different so there's this aspect of it that you know i had to learn my voice and i had to learn how i was going to present this entire show like what does it sound like And there's this gap in your head between when it's all done and recorded and what it actually sounds like. There's this huge gap between what I want it to be and what it is. And the goal is to like close that gap with practice over time. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of like one of the early things I was struggling with is just what does it sound like and why isn't it sounding like I want it to sound like and all this stuff. Basically, I I scrounged up a microphone, which is the same mic I'm using right now. uh, Strangely enough, it's a a blue snowball. And I had this... um, I had this mic, which is just a cheap USB mic, for years. I want there to be limits on my creativity. And if I have just like a a cheap USB mic and a computer, that's my limits, right? And I try to even use free software to see 
what I could do with that. But if I have like an unlimited budget and I have all the best gear and a sound studio, now I have unlimited things and that kind of, I don't know, it fizzles out my creativity. But when I'm limited, I kind of get that extra, I don't know, I feel like a fighter, like a, you know, an up and coming fighter. Like I can, I can do it with just what I have. So I just grabbed whatever I could, uh, the, the cheap USB mic I had in a drawer for, for years. And I used some free software for episode one, just started writing. I think it was even in like Google Docs that I wrote the whole story in and called up some people. That was kind of exciting to do my first interview too, right? So I called up a bunch of people to, to interview. I think I called like 10 or I emailed 10 and like one or two got back to me. And I was like, okay, I got, I got one. I'm like so excited. And he, he was on the other side of the world. And so I had to wake up at like 4 a.m. to like get the interview and all this. And I was so nervous and excited, but it worked out. And um, yeah, I mean, I started putting all the parts together and doing a bunch of research and you know, laying tracks and getting music in there and really struggling to get it all compiled. Like I didn't understand what needed to be first. Like, do I write the story first or do the interviews first or do I do the research first? And what's second? Like, it was just such a confusing thing. But when you just try, when you just start putting stuff down on paper, right? It's putting stuff down in the audio tracks. Then you start seeing things come together. Okay, I guess I should go back and do this. And you start learning what, what it is. And you don't really get in that groove for like another... 10 episodes or so but at the beginning you just got to start making something it doesn't matter like if it's the right way or the wrong way just start making it and you'll learn what the right way is over time that's kind of just my method on so many things i don't know if this is the right way but i'm just gonna start making it have you ever spent a bunch of time brainstorming email subject lines only to be disappointed by the open rate why not just text your users instead sms open rates are 98 percent Send out a download link to your app, let users know about a new release, or provide two-way customer support. Simple texting makes it easy. Text code story to 555-888 and get an instant demo and 50% off your first month. Seriously, grab your phone right now and do it. Text code story, all caps, all one word, to 555-888. Data and message rates apply. Use text to instantly connect with new and existing users today. Sign up at simpletexting.com slash code story. Dial into that first episode a little bit more. You know, you talked about grabbing a hold of what you could grab a hold of and, and just going for it, right? And in doing that, and you know, most people building MVPs or early versions, prototypes of product, they got to grab a hold of what they know and then just build. So, and in doing that, they have to make decisions and trade-offs in the short term in the hopes of getting something out there. So what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make while you were doing that? I was one person. And when I listened to my inspiration, which is like This American Life and Radio Lab, you hear the credits at the end and there's 20 people who work on those shows. I knew I couldn't make a show that good. Like I, I just knew that from the beginning. And so I kind of switched my inspiration to try to find shows that were similar to what I wanted to make, but were made by one or two people. And I did find a few shows. There's like uh, the show Criminal is made by two people. Uh, they have a third person at the beginning that kind of did some mixing, but they would have been okay with just two people, right? So they had three, but they would have been okay with two. And then there was a couple other shows like uh, First Day Back was another one that I found. I was like, oh my gosh, one person made this. This is crazy. And Millennial was another one. You know, I was like, okay, if one person can make these shows and they're not like the best shows out there, but they're but they're what I want to make, right? Then 
that's kind of the bar I need to set. And it, so I, I went from like a amazingly great podcast of like This American Life to, to something that was just like, okay, there's a lot less whiz bang in some of these other ones. There's a lot less, you know, polish. And I, I think that's okay. I think the story is going to be able to stand up still. And I, I think I can learn over time and, you know, get better. That was, I think, the biggest trade off is just knowing that I'm a one person show here. And there's only so much I can do. And there's so many times where I was working on an episode in the early days where I know the episode needed more time, but I just couldn't spend more time on it. Like after you spend a hundred hours on something that is just going to be listened to for like a half an hour, you know, it's like, okay, how much more time do I really, sh so I just, I kind of put a cap on things, even though I know it should have been better. I had to just give up after a while. So, I mean, those were some of the trade-offs I think. As you started to release episodes, how did you progress the show? How did you progress the pod and, and mature how you went about making the show, how you went about producing the show, and, and even, you know, if applicable, growing your team? Listener feedback was crucial at the beginning. So I wanted to know, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, when did you turn it off? How many episodes did you listen to? How many people did you tell to listen? You know, if these, these are kind of some interesting things I needed to know. And then, you know, once I get those answers, I can, I can kind of dial into it and say, okay, well, at what part did you turn off? Or, you know, did I do the story justice? I did a lot of uh, tweaking based on this, right? So I, I learned a lot. One of the most important things to me was to make sure I was factual about what I was reporting or storytelling on. So I was really, really dive into the news and crime reports and whatever police reports and and stuff to make sure it was doing right. So I was asking a lot of people who knew the story as well, how close was I to the truth? And then they would tell me like, oh, yeah, you got it right, but there was this or that. And so I would learn how to improve the, the research as well. So yeah, I mean, I was just getting a lot of listener feedback at the beginning. And when I knew that the show was great, right? So without even asking people for feedback, I was getting people telling me like, I've binged it all and I want more. Or I sat my family down to listen to it and they love it. Or I just can't get enough of this. Can you just please, you know, give me more? I knew I knew I just had I had something at that point to just kind of put kerosene on and set it on fire and say, let's do this. And it was kind of early that I got that, you know, like four or six episodes in, people are like, yes, yes, this is what how do I just help you to the point where you could just do this full time and just supply me with tons of episodes because this is great. But it's important to have that before going forward, right? And it's kind of like you said, that MVP of making sure that whatever problem you're solving is really solving it for the for the people, for the customers, in this case, the listeners. And so, I mean, I, I could have tried to market it or, or tried to make money on it and all that, but that was not an intention because I wanted to make sure it was good first. I wanted to make sure the audience loved it before going forward. And that was a critical part of growing it. Another thing was just practice. Like I knew I had to put out like 15 or 20 episodes before I felt confident at doing this. And so to me, it was kind of a race at the beginning. How can I just get through that as fast as I can? And so at the beginning, I was actually doing weekly episodes. Now I do every other week. I just really wanted that experience under my belt, as well as the competitive advantage to like some of my competitors. Because after I launched, I kind of saw that there were a few other shows similar to mine. So I was like, ah, oh, okay, so I, I don't want to be like this this new guy anymore. I kind of want like 15 or 20 episodes out there. So it seems like, oh, wow, this guy, uh, you know, has been around for a while. 
I was just trying to get as many episodes as I could out to practice, to get feedback on, and to get that competitive edge, as well as um, finding the stories took a lot of effort too. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, f- the first phase of it all. Oh, and finding my voice, right? Like what I was saying earlier, is practicing all kinds of different podcasters' voices, like lots of different accents and styles and methods. I was uh, imitating Aaron Mankey and Malcolm Gladwell and Ira Glass and, and the people at Radiolab and so many other podcasters to see what is it like, what does my show sound like in that style? You know, after like 20 or 30 episodes, I finally found my style that I kind of feel comfortable with or is mine and at this point I don't even know where I took it from because I just kept taking it from all these places that it's it's all just kind of melded into one and I think those were kind of the early days as well of of growing everything so looking at Dartneck Diaries looking what you've built you've got great listener feedback people can't get enough you've got great stories you found your voice how did you figure out what was next to do Well, next, I knew it was marketing and just getting the thing to spread. I think there's three phases to podcasting. One is to make a great podcast, which I think is by far the hardest part. Without making something great, you're going to have a hard time marketing it. You're going to have a hard time getting it off the ground. So you need to start with the great. So I felt like I had that part done. And then the next phase is marketing. And then the last phase is sustaining it. Or other words, making money off of it, right? So keeping it going is kind of hard and making money helps doing that. The next phase was marketing it. So I had about 3,000 Twitter followers at the time when I started. So that was a good place to market it. I also had a blog that was pretty popular and I was able to put a nice little banner on there saying, listen to this podcast. And so just on average, I would get about seven clicks a day from that banner and that was really good too. You know, seven new listeners a day just from my blog is a nice funnel. And still to this date, there's nothing that has more referral links than my own blog, which I've been featured in New York Times and, and Verge and, you know, all these other places. So it's funny that all these other big publications can't send more traffic to my blog than my, or to my website, to my podcast than my own little blog. But yeah, I mean, these were places that I was starting at and, and it wasn't a, you know, a big boost. It was, you know, seven a day. That was kind of what I was looking at is how can I make this 10 a day? How can I make this 12 a day? You know, new, new clicks to my website, new listeners. And so I was doing things like, okay, Gary Vaynerchuk really kicked my butt (laughs) mentally and said, you need to produce 30 pieces of content a day on social media. So I was like, fine, I'll try it your way. Cause I really, I mean, this is what I do. I try everyone's method to see what method is you know, most effective to me. So I made an Instagram, I made a Facebook, I made a LinkedIn, I made a subreddit, I made all these places. And I said, okay, let's just post here like crazy. So I set up Edgar, I don't know, I queued up like three months or six months worth of content. And then I told it to publish it like once a day or twice a day. And so it would kind of cycle through a ton of posts that I had queued up. So it took me like three weeks to queue up all these posts. And pretty much the way I would do it is like two out of 10 posts would be self-promotion. Like listen to this podcast or here's a quote from my podcast. And then the other like eight out of 10 posts were inspirational or crazy news that I read or something funny. A lot of them were jokes and memes and I was just kind of putting content out there so that they would be reshared and upvoted and, and recycled and people would find me and follow me. And, you know, cause you want to lead with 
just give them content straight away on social media. Don't make them go to another website to get the content. So if I was giving them something wild or crazy or interesting just instantly, then that was more likely for them to follow me. And if they're following me, now it's more likely for me to get them to listen. So I kind of knew this funnel. I went crazy on social media. My goal was to get to 10,000 followers on all the platforms. So 10,000 followers on Instagram, 10,000 followers on Twitter, 10,000 followers on Facebook. I did meet that goal, but it took about a year. And with this, like this kind of, I don't know, it's something magic about 10,000 where it kind of unlocks extra features like an Instagram, you get to do new things. Uh, 10,000, you get to like add links to stories basically and some other stuff. But uh, there's also something where when you post it, it's a lot more likely to hit like a trending thing. So when people are just kind of bored and just kind of seeing what's cool out there, your, your post kind of gets showed up there because now you've got you know, 10,000 people who may be liking it. So if you get like 100 likes on the first day, that's a lot more likely to be trending versus somebody who has, you know, 20 followers and posts something and gets two likes. So, you know, it was a big deal for me to just kill it on social media. And I think it worked. I do thank Gary for kicking my butt to get on there and do it because social media has been a phenomenal place for me to market the thing and pretty much almost all free there was a couple places where i i did end up paying uh just to kind of experiment and and get over kind of some humps but for the most part i could have done it all free and i yeah free is a, a very good way to do it you don't really need to pay much to get marketed out there but it took a lot of work so you can you know choose the do a lot of hard work or the or pay <laughs> to get the hard work done kind of option and I did the hard work one so besides that I was also I did a conference where I spoke in front of a large crowd and I promoted my own podcast there and I sent stickers to other conferences like I said hey I want I want to buy the stickers for your conference and you know the official stickers that say welcome to this conference but at the same time when you hand those stickers out can you hand out my stickers too and so they're like, heck yeah, we love your show. Let's do it. So, um, you know, I was kind of sponsoring a couple conferences that way, as well as going to conferences myself and just handing out, I mean, literally 3,000, 5,000 stickers in a weekend and getting them out to like, you know, in the hands of 10,000 people or 20,000 attendees, whatever, just doing everything I could kind of guerrilla marketing. Another big marketer I love is uh, Seth Godin. And so I just kind of scoured as many books as I could of his and read through them and just did all the guerrilla marketing techniques and tactics and and doing everything that he recommended. So yeah, it just was really ready for marketing the thing because I also had been researching how to market stuff in the past and all kinds of tips and tricks on that. So I was just super primed to do it and now I had something to market and I just went bonkers there and it worked out. I was able to get to a place where I could start making money off the thing in about six months time since launching. How did you go about building your team? How did you go about choosing the winning horses to join you on this journey? Yeah, I'm kind of still in that process. Uh, it's really hard. I was really into the podcasting news and the whole podcasting space. So I found kind of like uh, more style NPR style um, forums and less just like 
two guys talking, like kind of what we're doing, kind of podcasting forums. In those kind of forums, in the NPR style forums, I was able to find some people who are willing to help, right? So I put like a kind of a job posting up there, like this is kind of what I need. And so a lot of people put their hat in and I kind of went through and rated them all and listened to like their, what they've made. Cause you can you always ask, you know, what have, what have you made so I can listen to it. And so I listened to it to see if it's similar to what I make and all this stuff. But really what I had the hardest time with is finding somebody who's good at tech or hacker stories, storytelling, and audio like there's people who are news writers for like the newspaper but that doesn't make them good at audio and so when i saw their stories because i said hey you want to try making you know this story for me that was really for the newspaper it wasn't anywhere close to audio so i knew i'd have to retrain that person so it was really hard for me to find somebody with these kind of three skill sets that kind of come together and it still is hard for me today i kind of just expect people to have one or two now and just use them for that like, okay, you're the writer and then you're the producer and you're the editor kind of thing. And I'm having a tough time getting it all together. And I'm trying to build this team kind of remotely. And so it's kind of hard to collaborate. So I kind of, I don't know, I, I've kind of like raised the pay to try to attract even more skilled and talented people. But I still kind of have a hard time finding just the right people to do it. I've kind of just given people little bits of things like, okay, I see a lot of us and ums. I know somebody who can fix that pretty easily. I don't have to train them very much. Just cut out all my uhs and ums. Okay. And so, you know, she now helps me with that part. It's not very creative. And so that kind of, you know, takes an extra level of skill is to get to something creative. But she could just listen and say, oh, yep, he, he repeated what he's saying here. Let's just cut that out. So I got that person. I've got some, another person who writes but they write kind of what I would write as like a first draft. So I kind of have to go in and redo a lot of the stuff. And then I have somebody who does sound design, which uh, is really helping a lot because there's probably like 30 songs in each episode. So you really have to go through the whole thing. Like, I mean, it's an hour long episode. So you have to go through like probably three or four times to put in all the music, right? You know, and to listen through it, like it's it's a lot of time. Like it just, it becomes time. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, it's really good to get like these little pieces, right? But the majority of production is still done by me uh, on most episodes, even today. And we're about three years into it now. So I, and I've also got some graphic designers and some and somebody who does transcription. So I, I kind of have these little specialty skills that I pull people in to do. And I haven't really found like a team that kind of comes together. I'm still the kind of the kingpin of it all to bring it all together. I really want to try to pull myself back off of it, but I just don't have the people. I can't find the people who, like you said, have that passion or skill set to do what I do. So I'm just having a tough time getting out of there. And what's tough is I have to do a new episode every two weeks. So there's very little rest. As soon as one is out, I just have to start a new one. I mean, you start from scratch every single time. You don't like have like some working code that you got to like use again. So yeah, it's just hard to keep that train going, but it does go. As you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, what are you most proud of? What I really like doing is educating and kind of teaching people stuff. And I try to sprinkle that in episodes. So when we're talking about, you know, the hacker did this, and then that is kind of a fun little topic like this. Well, let me teach you how Mimikatz, this, you know, hacking tool works. I love like jumping in that for a minute and teaching how it works. 
without being boring, right? Like there's this real, there's this fine line of like, oh boy, here he goes. He's going to teach me something and I already know it. Or he's going to teach me something that's going to be boring because I don't like, you know, being lectured on something. So I have to like really kind of make it exciting or, or philosophical or, or interesting. But what I've learned is that this show has inspired so many people to get into security, whether they're in their 30s and 40s and switching careers into security or they're teenagers just starting their career. But over and over, I've, I've had people tell me this and I'm just like, that is amazing that I was able to give you direction in life. Like, that's what it seems like to me that they're explaining. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I listened to your podcast and now I know exactly what I want to do in my life. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I, I did that. And they, and they feel a little bit educated that you know, this is how these hacks happen and this is how this stuff goes on. And so there's this, that, I think that's what I'm most proud of is just the impact I've made on a lot of people to get a new direction in life. That's amazing. That's incredibly rewarding, isn't it? Mm, yeah. The first time, I'll never forget the first person who told me that because I was just totally floored by it. And I'm like, wow, this is worth, this to me is worth more than, than actually making money off of it because it's just so rewarding versus uh, the money just goes straight to the you know the bills or the mortgage or whatever it is and it's like well okay that's cool i can live here but i didn't like <laughs> there's something ma magical about making something creatively and then having somebody appreciate you f for it it's just it's, i didn't expect that that was an unintended unexpected uh, perk of it all well let's flip the script a little bit from what you're most proud of tell me about a mistake you made and how you responded to it my biggest fear is that I didn't research something enough. Like we're in the whole cancel culture world and all this stuff. And if I like put a spotlight on something that should not have a spotlight on it, I'm going to feel really bad about it. You know, like just because this person is a real creep or did something terrible. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let me talk about how great this person is. And I didn't read all the news about them, you know, like the last chapter of their story or something. And so I get really nervous about that or not even like uh, representing the story properly because I, I, I don't want to sound rude or arrogant by like making opinions about something. And then, well, actually, that did happen or didn't happen or something at all, you know, because I read the wrong news article. So I get really nervous about that. And so one story came out where I had this guy on and a bunch of other people came to me and said, that guy's 100 percent lying. He did not do any of the stuff he says on your show. And so I was like, oh, no, like, what do I how do I handle this? And it really it's I mean, it's still a struggle today to figure out what the best thing is here, because he's claiming things that are kind of a big deal. And these people are saying, no, it was not him, a different person. And they know the person who it was. And so there's there's this thing. So to correct it, I put an addendum at the end of the episode saying there's some controversy here. There's some other people who are saying that this is not you know accurate. And so I, I just kind of try to be open about it. And I think at some point there's going to be enough information because I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence still. But I think at some point there's going to be enough information that I'll be convinced that it, it wasn't them because it is one person's opinion versus another, you know. And so, you know, once there's enough information, I think I'll have to remove that episode because I can't handle putting, you know, bad stuff out there or fake stuff. So I'll have to uh, remove it. So that that was a really crazy experience to just... I mean, this is a person who had 
been featured in Rolling Stone for their for their um, story and all these other publications and so many people like I know their friend his friends and their friends vouch for him that he did this and so I really did my due diligence to research like is this actually true and yeah I mean apparently he lied to Rolling Stone and all this other stuff too and that was just really hard for me to grapple that somebody would fabricate such a big story like that and that was I, I don't know if it's a mistake on my part but it was something that I really felt like I did something wrong and yeah it's just hard and that's kind of the thing that when you have one person team you can only do so much fact checking and background checks and everything to know what this is all about so these are things that I've learned and, and you know I'm very sensitive on making sure I get it all right So what does the future look like for the show? I kind of want to tell you about where we are right now, and then we can go in the future. So the podcast is getting about 200,000 downloads per episode. It's about three years old now. And for those who don't understand podcast popularity, anything around 1,200 downloads an episode, that's like the top 20% of all podcasts. So if you're getting 40,000 downloads an episode, only the top 1% get that. So I have 200,000 downloads an episode, which is extremely popular for for podcasting's world. You look at like YouTube videos and you're like, well, other people get like 1 million downloads in like the first minute of being uploaded. But um, I, I don't compete with that, right? So the podcasting world is different. So with, um, with those numbers, you can really um, get sponsorships and all kinds of things. Like I have two ads per episode and I charge, you know, quite a bit for those. And it's amazing that I can, you know, put such a price tag on these ads and I won't go into those numbers, but what is public is that Patreon is another thing that I'm getting revenue from and it's got $10,000 a month in Patreon funds. So... That is just phenomenal right there alone. And then I've also got a shop because I've got so much uh, graphic design that I've done on the podcast that I've got, um, you know, each episode has its own unique graphics, which kind of was a, is an overkill for podcasting, but I kind of like it. So I just went with it. And so, you know, so much of the graphic design that I've done on the show, I've made into t-shirts and stuff. So the t-shirts are selling really, really good as well. So there's, there's three kind of, you know, streams of income here and combined is definitely more than what I was making as an engineer, as well as allows me to pay kind of top dollar for producers and such to help me with the show. I'm getting comfortable now. I mean, I'm, I was trying to pour all the things that I was making back into the show, but um, now it's, you know, it's more comfortable and, and this multiple streams is really helping a lot too. That's where we are with the current situation. And then the future, I mean, I just want to build the, a better, uh, you know, like a team to let me do less work, but I'm not a person who does less work. I'm a person that, oh, I've got more time. I'm going to build more things. So if I have more time to do things, I will be making possibly a second podcast or a book or a, or a course. And Pat Flynn and, and some others kind of taught me this, like you can use your podcast to market your other stuff. And instead of putting other ads in my show, it would be great to take all the ads out one day and just market my own books or or courses because you know people are wanting to switch careers to be in security and if i had a course that taught them here's what you need to do i think that would be a great one-two punch of get them hooked and then 
you know, pay at least this is a pay for course, you know. So that would be cool to like do that in the future, and then it, I wouldn't need sponsors at that point because I could get the revenue from that. That would be an ultimate goal. So you mentioned Gary V, you mentioned Seth Godin, but I'm curious who influences the way you work, like a CEO, CTO, name a person you look up to and why. I mean, I have to look at other podcasters, right? And Aaron Menke is the guy who made Lore. And I'm not a big fan of Lore or his work, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of how he just crushes it. Uh, this guy <laughs> this guy went from no name. Like, so so you look at Joe Rogan, right? He was, he was on TV. He was doing his own TV shows, his own stand-up comedy. Like, when he starts a podcast, he's got a million followers on YouTube, on Twitter. Already is easy for him to become a popular podcaster. That's a magic power I don't have. So I right. have to look at the landscape of who who's starting where I'm starting because that's who I kind of want to like mimic. Not somebody that's completely in another you know mesosphere than I am. So Aaron Minky was this person who started as nobody with no followers on YouTube or Twitter or anything and just decided to start podcasting and has since you know, created a full-time income out of it, created a second podcast, created his own TV show on Amazon. So, I mean, this guy is just like, you know, he's the trailblazer for me. And he, he was off for a long time. He was just a single person doing it all. That's just a huge influence to me to say, okay, what is this guy doing and how did he do it? That's kind of somebody who I, who I follow very closely and I don't agree with him you know all the things he's done and i i actually i firmly disagree on a lot of things like like he uh he was kind of starting podcasting in a space where you didn't there wasn't a lot as much competition so the way he markets a show and the way i market would be extremely different and so um you know he his way of you know this is how you get your show out there in my way are two different things but i really like his drive and when you see somebody who just has like non-stop drive to just go, keep going and going and going and he's got like two or three books made at this point this just in, inspires me in such a level that i'm like okay that's you know because you got you kind of got to look up and see where am i going to peak at where am i going to where am i going to plateau at and there's these people that are above me that I'm just chasing. And that's one of them right there. Aaron Mankey from Lore. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently for the show? Or what would you consider taking a different approach on? I feel like I did a lot of things right. And so I'm, I have very little regrets on how I would do it differently. There was just little things like I would focus on iTunes ranking so much at the beginning. And I would I would focus on just kind of little details that I just don't think matter as much. I was trying to get the word out maybe a little too soon as well. It wasn't ready for, you know, New York Times. And I was pitching things to New York Times like, hey, did you guys, I know you guys <laughs> write us stories about the podcast, podcast. Did you check this podcast out? And it's like, well, maybe I wasn't ready for that at that point, right? Uh, you know, maybe I just pulled the gun too early on marketing as well. When I hit a problem, I just kind of overcome and adapt and just keep going. I don't really stress on it too much that like, oh man, that was a big mistake. So yeah, I just learned... I just learned, okay, steer the other way. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So last question, Jack. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur. They've got the itch. You know, they're starting their next big thing, whether it be, you know, building a product or building a successful podcast. What advice do you give that person? 
I mean, there's a lot of different things. So it's like, I really like Seth Godin's theories on a lot of the stuff where he says, be the purple cow, stand out. Don't be, it's, it's so hard for me because I, I have contradictions to this as well. So it's like, don't be the same as everyone else. Do be something different and then be the best in your category at that. So like, I didn't know there was a true crime meets cybercrime category. There isn't a true crime meets cybercrime category, right? So that podcast category is something I invented in my own head. And then I was determined to be the best in that category, even though nobody else even knew that category existed, right? So that was unique and the best. So to be the first in that space and the best in that space was that combo, I think is really important. If you can accomplish that, that's great. But at the same time, I'm making t-shirts, right? And that is not something unique and special at all. Everyone's had t-shirts for a hundred years and there's t-shirt shops on every corner. What am I doing making t-shirts? But it's one of those things that everyone needs t-shirts. Just like everyone needs gasoline for their cars or food. And I think you can create a gas station or a restaurant and kill it out there because people need this stuff. So I kind of took that concept as why I started making t-shirts because everyone needs to wear something. You don't always have to be different. You just have to make something great that people want. That whole greatness factor is the biggest thing to overcome. You can't just make something that's mediocre because people don't recommend stuff that's good. They don't rave about it on Twitter or on Facebook. Oh, this thing, it's good. You guys should check it out. No, they only rave about stuff and only spread things that they love and that are great. And then they really want other people to, to listen to or watch or use or whatever. I'm a big fan of like, make it great, really analyze every part of it to make it great and only put the great stuff out. There's so many interviews that I, that I talked to this person for hours and hours, but then only published 30 minutes of it because that was the great parts of the interview, right? And so it's, I was kind of a really strict curator of what goes in the show to make sure it's great. As many seconds as possible are great, if, you know, if not every second. So, um, you know, that was just something that I think was really important at the beginning is for anyone starting out is, is make it great. And there's some other schools of thoughts. Like there's some people like Gary Vaynerchuk. He makes a new episode, a podcast episode every day. And every day it's not great. There are so many sucky episodes that he has. And his theory is just get it out, get, go, 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 go. And so, you know, you have a couple schools of thoughts. You can just keep ma putting stuff out there, put content out there and see what happens. Or you can go my path, which is wait until it's ready and then put it out and, and make sure it's great when you do. Well, Jack, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of Darknet Diaries. It's fun to go through it all. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.